We're going to start the conference now. <laughs> Praise God. Okay. So our next speaker, uh, you have already heard from once today, uh, but what a blessing. You're going to get to hear from him again. I'd like to just go ahead and kick it off by asking um, David Barton, the founder and president of Wall Builders, to come on up and share with us. Guys, let's make him feel welcome. Matt around? Okay. Matt, right here, would you stand? Here's the hero that gets everything done, guys. We don't get this done without Matt, so thank you, sir. Uh, I want to start this session by going to a report that came out, this year's American Bible Society report. And let's see, I will get out of here real quick and go back in. Let's see if that does it. Not yet. There it is. The American Bible Society report for 2022. They come out with the report every year. Now, significantly, the American Bible Society was started in 1816 by founding fathers. We always hear the founding fathers are atheists, agnostics, deists, at least that's what most kids get in school. The American Bible Society started by signers of the Constitution like Charles Worthrop Pinckney, John Langdon started by President of the United States, John Quincy Adams started by Chief Justice U.S. Supreme Court, John Marshall started by New York City Mayor Richard Varick. All these guys start the American Bible Society, largest Bible society in the world, distribute hundreds of millions of Bibles a year, and it goes back to the founding fathers starting it. So every year they do the State of the Bible Report. This year, the year 2022, if you look at the right, you see on the blue and the yellow how it takes a nosedive. Now this is Bible reading among Americans. What we found is this year, 26 million Americans stopped reading the Bible this year, 26 million more in addition to what's there. Now, how do they define a Bible reader? They define a Bible reader as someone who reads the Bible outside of church four times a year. We've lost 26 million more who only read it four. That's such a low threshold. And we've lost that many more. So Bible reading, Bible knowledge in America is on a serious, very steep decline. You recall that Jesus tells us in Matthew 4, 4, that man doesn't live by, every, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So our spiritual food is God's word. Just like we just had a break for physical food, Americans, we are really good about making sure our body is taken care of. We'll get three squares a day, no question about it. We don't take that good care of our spirit. If we were to make a commitment as Americans that I will not eat a physical meal until after I've had a spiritual meal, most Americans would have starved to death long ago because we do not feed the spirit the same way we take care of the body. So Jesus, man doesn't live by bread alone. So what you've got is this, this aspect of taking care, taking regular meals, taking regular food. I want to challenge you to read the Bible daily if you don't. A lot of Christians do not. I'll show you the stats on that in a minute. But it doesn't matter how much you read the Bible. I'm going to encourage you to read it more than you do. If you already read it a lot, it's not enough. And I'm going to show you why historically. I'm going to show you examples of what the average typical Christian used to do in Bible reading. And I don't know of hardly anyone today that comes anywhere close to what the average typical Christian used to do in Bible reading. So I'm gonna challenge you to try to read the Bible at least daily. And I'm also gonna ask you to add to your repertoire that you start trying to memorize scriptures, at least one a week. Now I'll show you why scripture memory is important. As a matter of fact, if you'll make this part of your discipline, let me take you to a historical example. I wanna take you back to um, the Constitutional Convention, 1787. In 1787, the Constitutional Convention is going on, writing the Constitution of the United States. There is no individual happier about this than Ben Franklin. He is the guy that for 33 years has been trying to get the United States of America. We were 13 different nations, as I mentioned this morning. We didn't like each other a lot of times. He's trying to say, guys, let's be one nation. Let's be the United States. So he started working on this. And when he signed the Declaration in 76, he was one of 56 guys to do that. We were getting closer to being a nation. He's really excited. Seven years later, he's one of only three guys to sign the peace treaty. Now we're really close to becoming a nation. He's loving it. And four years later, he's sitting at the Constitutional Convention helping create the United States of America. This is what he's been calling for for 33 years. Nobody in America did it longer than Ben Franklin did. And so he's happy to be here, except things did not go the way he wanted 
You see, at that time, because we were 13 nations, everybody came with their own agenda. How do you write the Constitution? Well, you got the Virginia plan or the Connecticut plan or the New Jersey plan or the New York plan. Everybody's got a plan. Of course, Jersey didn't want New York's plan. New York didn't want Connecticut's plan. Connecticut didn't want Virginia's plan. So what happens is between five and six six weeks into the convention, it literally is falling apart. They've had so much fighting, so much bickering with each other that people like Alexander Hamilton, he said, I'm going back to New York. I got better things to do and fight with all you guys. And George Mason of Virginia, same thing. I'm going back to Virginia. I'm tired of all the bickering. Washington convinced him to stay, but the thing is falling apart. It's at this point that Franklin gives the longest speech he gave. Now, this is Franklin here. He's 81 years old at the time. The average lifespan in America in 1787 was 33 years old. So there he sits at 81, quite impressive. And the speech he gave was on Thursday, June the 28th, 1787. It's the only speech that Franklin gave without writing out. All of his other speeches he wrote out, and he had someone else read them. But this one was just from the heart. This has really got his gut, and he just has to talk about it. And so this is a speech that he gave from the heart. It was recorded by James Madison. James Madison wrote down the speech and what he said. I want to show you what Franklin's doing. Now, remember the frustrations going on. This thing's falling apart. This has been his heart's dream for 33 years. He's now seeing that dream crushed in front of him. And he says, gentlemen, he says, in this situation, this assembly, groping as it were to find, to, <clears throat> groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we've not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection, and they did. This is the room in which 11 years earlier, they signed the Declaration of Independence. At that point in time, we did not have a bicameral Congress. It wasn't a House and Senate. It was one body, but it had three chaplains, and we prayed a lot. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to 1815, there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America. So we prayed a lot. He said, guys, don't you remember? In this room, we used to pray all the time. He said, our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. He said, all of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And yes, he had. He said, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we should succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we should become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. He said, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers employed this is the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, clearly there is a religious tone to the speech he just gave. And by the way, Franklin is the least religious of the founding fathers. Nobody disputes that. So this is your least religious founding father? And this is what we used to say, oh, the founders weren't religious, just look at Franklin. Okay, let's look at Franklin for a minute. Franklin, interestingly enough, Franklin, the speech you just saw was 14 sentences long. Here's the question I've got for you. How many Bible verses did he quote in that 14 sentences? Think about it. Go back over it in your mind. You should come up with 14 Bible verses, and these are the Bible verses that he quoted. Now, remember that he's doing this off the cuff. This is just a, a passionate speech he's given. This is one he didn't write down. How did he get so many Bible verses in there? Jesus answered that. Jesus told us, Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason he could speak the Bible verses was he had memorized the Bible verses. They came flowing out of him because that's what he had been learning. Now, this is your least religious founding father? Yeah, but see, somebody in this room is the least religious person here today. That doesn't mean you're anti-religious, anti-God, anti-Jesus. It just means maybe you're 99.6% when everybody else is 99.7%. 
Okay, he's your least religious founding father, and, and he has memorized this, these many verses. He had a real Bible knowledge that most Christians today do not have, and we don't think of him as a Christian, and yet you look back and see what he did. And by the way, significantly, he had a, a good friendship with Reverend Samuel Cooper. I mentioned him this morning. Samuel Cooper's the guy that kept the revival going in Boston after Whitfield had it going there. Samuel Cooper and Franklin were good friends, once in Massachusetts, once in Pennsylvania, and Franklin and Cooper write back and forth each other. And in one of the letters, Franklin was telling Pastor Cooper, he said, you know, he said, there is such a difference between crowds here in America and crowds when I'm over in Europe, because he had been ambassador to England, ambassador to France, et cetera. And, and this is what Franklin told him. He says, it is not necessary in New England where everybody reads the Bible and is acquainted with scripture phrases that I should note the Bible references from which I take them. When I quote the Bible, I don't have to tell anybody in America I'm quoting the Bible. Everybody studied the Bible. Everybody knows the Bible. Everybody at the Constitutional Convention knew where all those verses came from. He said, but when I go to Europe, it's a different thing. He says, but I've observed in England as well as in France that verses and expressions taken from the sacred writings and not known to be such appear very strange and awkward to some readers. When I'm in Europe, I have to tell them I'm quoting the Bible because they don't recognize the Bible verses. They're biblically literate. America has become the Europe back in that day. Most people, I do pastor's conferences all the time. I've never had a pastor's conference come up with identifying more than five of the verses out of the 14. And that's pastors. These are the guys trained in God's word. See, we don't know the Bible even as much as our least religious founding fathers used to know the Bible. And by the way, other examples, if I take you, for example, to Patrick Henry, you may be familiar with his famous speech, give me liberty, give me death. That speech that he gave in the legislature of Virginia, which by the way, the legislature of Virginia met at St. John's Church in Richmond. So the legislature is meeting to the church. What happened to separation church and state stuff we're told the founding fathers wanted? Yeah, the legislature met at the church and he gave a passionate speech that day. And in that speech that he gave, if you want to read it, it's 14 sentences long, but the same question, how many Bible verses, the verses he used, there were 11 Bible verses. He's just rattling off the cuff. He is so frustrated with what the other legislators are doing. He just got up and said, guys, you're wrong. And he just goes into a speech. This is just off the cuff. Same thing happened with George Washington. When George Washington, and by the way, these are the verses, and notice these verses. I'm not sure about you, but I'm going to bet that most people have not memorized Ecclesiastes 9:11 as a favorite Bible verse, or Deuteronomy 32. See, these verses here, these aren't the ones that we typically memorize, but this is what they had in their heart. This is what they had memorized, and this is what came out when the time was right and they needed this. Uh, you go to George Washington. In 1789, he becomes president. In 1790, he decides, you know, we need to I need to visit every state in the United States because we've been separate nations. We need to know that we're a nation. So I'm going everywhere, every state. And in 1790, he had plans to go into Rhode Island. As he was going into Rhode Island, plans are announced. He's, President Washington's going to visit Rhode Island. There's a Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island that wrote Washington a letter. And it was just an effusive letter. It said, we so thank God for what you've done. What you've done for religious liberty, what you've done for our freedoms, we thank God has raised you up. And they just gushed all over him. It was just a really nice letter. And so Washington replied back to them. And replying back, it was a cordial letter, kind of a presidential letter. He said, thank you, that's really nice. And the letter that he replied back to him in had a total of two sentences. In two sentences, he quoted 10 Bible verses. In two sentences, these are the Bible his letter to the Hebrew congregation is just about Bible phrase after Bible phrase after Bible phrase. That's what he used to, to craft that reply. So when you look back at founding fathers, you find that they knew the Bible. They knew it very well. They studied it well. Lots of examples. We, we in the summertime, we do training for 18 through 25-year-old students who are going to college because they don't get this kind of history. And we'll take half a day one day where we just pick out a bunch of founding fathers' writings. We, we pick out Abigail Adams or Ben Franklin or whoever, and we'll throw it down and say, here's a concordance. There's their letter. See how many Bible verses you can find in their letter. It is just loaded. But as Americans, we really don't recognize the Bible as well as they did back in that day. So looking at where we are as Americans, we're a very blessed people. Sometimes we don't recognize that because we're too close to it. But when you look at where we are, Cornell University Law School said, you know, there's been hundreds of nations, thousands in the history of the world. We have 5,800 years of recorded history. What is the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? And they went back and found all the history and found all the records and all the nations. And they said the average length of the constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. 
Next week on September 17th, when we have Constitution Day, we will be at 235 years. We're 234 right now. Now, you want to tell me that the average is 17 and we're at 234, about to be 235, and we need to, we need to blow the Constitution up and do something different. We, we, need to try, we need to try socialism or Marxism. Right now, 70, 75% of college students think that we need to get rid of the constitutional system, go to socialism. 49% of millennials believe, no, 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 no. It's never worked in the history of the world except right here. This is the only time it's worked, and you want to blow it up? But see, we don't know enough history. We don't know enough government to even know how blessed we are. We're blessed not only with the longevity we have, we're blessed with creativity. America is only 4% of the world's population, and our 4% of the world's population, instead of producing 4% of the world's whatever, our 4% of the world's population has produced more than 96% of the inventions in the history of the world. Try that for size. We are so surrounded by stuff that we just take for granted because we have it on a daily basis that other nations don't. Same with prosperity. We have um, every 10 years we have to do a census required by the Constitution. We did it in 2020. The results came out in 2021. And in those results, it turns out that if you live in poverty in America, your lifestyle is higher than middle class in Europe. Whoa. Middle class in Europe is the second wealthiest place on the face of the earth behind America. And if you're in poverty in America, you're higher than middle class in Europe. Yep. You see, that's why everybody who's not from America, that's why everybody's lining up wanting to get into America. If they can just come to America and live in poverty, they will have elevated their lifestyle from any other place in the world. We are blessed in ways we don't recognize, and we used to identify why we were blessed. Um, one of the things that we have at Wall Builders, we have about 160,000 items Richard mentioned, uh, original documents. We've got so many hundreds of textbooks. I can take you through textbooks for 400 years. First textbook, well, actually 300, 300 and some years. First textbook published in America was 1690, Boston, Massachusetts. We've got that one, and we can take, take you through centuries. And we, we used to tell students, students, the reason that America is different from all of the nations is because of the Bible. The Bible is the reason we're different. Now, most Christians today could not define the statement that I just made, but let me give you one example. One example showing how the Bible's influenced America is simply the way we talk to one another. We have what we call idioms. They're phrases that we use, kind of little colloquial axioms that we use. There's 257 phrases that we use on a daily basis that are quotations directly out of the Bible. For example, my generation thinks that we used to say, still do, say, by the skin of your teeth, or I'll give you my two cents worth, a leopard can't change his spots. Every one of these phrases is a direct quotation right out of the Bible. This is a Bible quotation. It's not just an axiom. And by the way, if you're in the younger generations, some of the ones that have become popular today, an eye for an eye, a house divided, fight the good fight, all these, all these axioms, they're out of the Bible. Now, one of the things I love doing is I love when I, I listen to news or radio or whatever, if I hear somebody quote the Bible, and I know they didn't quote the Bible, but I will call the office and say, hey, this station, this channel, this day, this guy said this about the Bible. Over the last three years, the single network that has quoted the Bible more than any other network is ESPN. Now, they didn't have a clue they quoted the Bible. I mean, you know, think about it. Four years ago, LeBron is gonna take the Lakers to the promised land. I don't think that worked out for them, but the promised land, where did that come from, Bible? So see, we use these phrases all the time and don't really even know where they come from. But if you want to have a lot of fun, next time you go to McDonald's or, I don't know, Walmart or Home Depot or wherever you go, you're going to hear someone quote one of those Bible phrases. And when you do, you really ought to stop them and say, hey, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? Now, of course, they're going to look at you and say, no, I don't. And then they're going to say, what Bible verse was that? And you won't have a clue either. You don't know where that thing came from. <laughs> See, every one of these has a specific address to it. We are so accustomed to having this, we don't even think of where it came from. I think where we are today is very well described by President John Quincy Adams who said this. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. Now see, this is the cultural default we've had in America. Today, if you had known those Bible verses, we would praise you. Oh, you are such a great Bible scholar. Can't believe you knew those Bible verses. Back in their day, they said, whoa, you didn't know what verse that was? Wow, shame on you. See, it was shameful in that day not to know the Bible. 
It is praiseworthy today to know the Bible. That's the cultural default we've had. And, and Teddy Roosevelt, and by the way, for the next several minutes, I'm going to quote just presidents of the United States because most Americans today are completely oblivious to the fact that for 150 years, it was the presidents of the United States who carried the water on the Bible in America. It was the presidents reminding us, guys, we can't be the nation we are without the Bible. Now, you know, you expect me or Andrew or Richard or somebody to say that today. You don't expect presidents to be the ones saying that. Here's what Teddy said, one of the many things he said. He said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and so entwined with our civic and social life. Notice he did not say spiritual life. That's, that's a given. He said the Bible is so much a part of our civic and our social life that it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. He said if you take out of American culture what the Bible has produced in our civic and our social life, you wouldn't recognize America. What's he talking about? Simple example. That free market economic system that's caused us to be the most prosperous nation in the history of the world came directly out of the Bible. I can take you back to the early founding of America, the, the Jamestown colony, the Plymouth colony, the pilgrims, etc. They came to America as socialists because they came out of Europe and the king owned everything, whatever the nation was in Europe. And he would let you use some of his stuff. He had all the jobs. He'd tell you what job you have. You turn everything to the king, he turns it back to you, gives what he wants you to have. You don't work for yourself, you work for the king. So everybody came here as a socialist. And it's an interesting thing. The pilgrims, when they came here, they were really into the Bible, which was a fairly new book. The Bible had been put up for mankind for more than a thousand years. You couldn't read it in the common language, call it the Dark Ages, Medieval Times, whatever you want to call it. But the Reformation came along and said, everybody needs to read God's Word in their own language and have their own Bible they can get their hands on and get back into God's Word. And so that's what the pilgrims and Puritans come out. They, they come out of this thing. The first English language Bible was produced in 1560. So the Bible is still a pretty new book to them when they come to America. And their governor, William Bradford, says they spent hours a day in that book because they're trying to conform their life to that book. They've lived in a culture that's not been biblical in a thousand years, and they're trying to figure out what do we need to drop and what do we need to adopt and how do I need to change my thinking? And so they spent hours a day in there, and Governor Bradford talked about the fact that they had socialism as if they were wiser than God because they found in the scriptures that God was not for socialism. And he specifically cites 1 Timothy 5, 8. that says, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel and you've denied the faith. And they said, wait a minute, we've been providing for everybody else's household. We've been having a common storehouse here among the pilgrims. God says, if you don't provide for your own household. And so they got together, had their town meeting and said, here's the new deal. Everybody's going to provide for their own household because that's what the scripture says. And they could do that because they all owned a private property, none of which was taken from the Indians, despite what we hear in history books today. Their governor, Josiah Winslow, said they did not own a square foot of property that they did not have a title deed to from the Indians, which is why the longest lasting treaty in American history between Anglos and Native Americans was between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags because they respected private property. That's one of the teachings of the Bible. The property didn't belong to the king. The king gave them the property and they said the king's crazy he doesn't own the property the indians do let's buy from the indians or they'll sell it and they did and that's why they made good neighbors so they start this and within three years the productivity in jamestown had gone up sevenfold by the time you get three three years later they became prosperous they never had another drought time like they had in the early years they became a very different colony and it's because of that free market system and you also find that when jamestown they had their troubles they were very lazy they were extremely socialistic they were not very biblical they were professing christians they didn't know the bible and in jamestown they kept waiting for the king to send them more ships with, with food and they got into a starving time and they literally went from 400, I think it was 450 people. They went down to about 70 people left. The rest of them starved over the winter. They got into cannibalism. They got into eating other people and those who died and they went to the cemetery and dug up the bodies to eat whatever meat was on the body. It was terrible. One guy, one guy, pregnant wife, he killed his wife, ate the baby, ate her. It was just, it was bad stuff all the way through. And then their, their governor, John Smith said, hmm, we have a verse here in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's the new law of the colony. And he had to use a whip to make them work because they were sitting around waiting for the king to provide stuff for them. So the free market system came out of actually five Bible verses in America. It came out of 2 Thessalonians 3.10, came out of 1 Timothy 5.8, came out of Luke 19, Matthew 20, and Matthew 25. And yet today, if you have an economics degree from a major university, you know that the father of modern economics is Adam Smith. He did the wealth 
Commonwealth of Nations in 1776. That's the free market system. No, free market system was introduced in America 150 years before Adam Smith wrote that book. The first free market business in America was in Aptucket, Massachusetts in 1627, and that's when that prosperity was going on for them. So take the free market system out of America, you wouldn't recognize us. Take our Republican form of government out. As a matter of fact, the most recent speech Joe Biden gave, he talked about we need to preserve American democracy. No, we don't. That's a really bad deal. The Constitution specifically prohibits us from ever becoming a democracy. It requires that we maintain ourselves as a constitutional republic. The Bible, the Bible gives us seven forms of government. You find them in the Bible. Most people can't, they don't have a clue the seven forms of government. They're in the Bible and the preferred form of government. And our founding fathers quoted these verses, Exodus 18, 21, Deuteronomy 16, 18, Deuteronomy 1, 15 and 16 is the reason we created a Republican form of government. It says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds and thousands. Oh, that means have elections for local, county, state and federal. That's not what a democracy does. That's what a republic does. And so that's our form of government. We don't want to be a democracy. The Bible talks about democracy. You have several examples in the gospel with the Romans, really bad form of government. So that's what he's talking about. You wouldn't recognize our civic and our social life if you took the Bible out of our culture. We don't think about that today. We're so used to our Republican form of government. We're so used to our free market system. We don't even think about where it came from. If it had not been for biblically literate people who knew God's word, we would be like every other nation in the world. And that's the difference that we have. And sure, we have blemishes. We have plenty of faults. That's why we have Savior, because nobody's perfect. There's none perfect, no, not one. We all are in need of a Savior, including nations. But we got there faster than any other nation in the world because we saw in the Bible what it should have been and we self-corrected better than any other nation. Give you some other examples real quick. This is Zachary Taylor. He was a military hero. Uh, he's, his nickname is Old Rough and Ready. Zachary Taylor said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it in the hands of everyone. It's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. Again, not our faith, our institutions. And you'll notice that the more secular any institution becomes, the less well it operates. The more secular education becomes, the less well it operates. The more secular economics becomes, the less well it operates. The more secular judiciary becomes, the less well it operates. The more secular law enforcement becomes, the less well it operates. See, our institutions, it was built on that. We take it away from that foundation, it doesn't work as well. He said, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. And by the way, best school book in the world. Doesn't he understand that's unconstitutional? He can't say that? See, this is the irony. We have been so miseducated today that we think it's always been that you couldn't have the Bible in schools. No, no, no. Back then, as the president said, good for us that we have the Bible in schools because that's what keeps us the nation we are. If you go, for example, to Ulysses S. Grant, he was the president of the United States in 1876. He was the leader of the Union forces through the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War. And in 1876, he's president. That's the centennial anniversary of America. We were born in 1776, our 100th anniversary, 1876. And he put out this card on it. You see it's top left, 1776, top right, 1876. In the middle it says centennial. And it says, message of President Grant to the children and the youth of the U.S. What did he tell the children and the youth of the U.S.? President Grant said, hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. To the influence of this book, we're indebted for all the progress made in true civilization. And to this, we must look as our guide in the future. That's what you're telling all the kids in America. The president saying, hey, guys, hang on to the Bible. This is where we came from. This is the only thing that's going to keep us together in the future. Uh, again, this is what you expect preachers to say. And many preachers won't even go this far. But this is what presidents were saying in previous days. You know, Benjamin Rush, we talked about him this morning, one of the three most notable founders called the father of public schools under the Constitution. In 1790, he did that piece saying, here's what we need to teach in education. And having said that God was the first thing we teach in education, in 1791, he came out with this piece on the use of the Bible in schools. Benjamin Rush, the father of public schools under the Constitution, gave a dozen reasons we would never take the Bible out of public schools in America. Among those reasons, he gave this. He said, the great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extinguishing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at schools. You know, there's a whole lot of pastors I've been with who think it's not proper to read the Bible at schools because education is supposed to be secular. The Bible's over in the church. 
No, Bible is the guidebook for all of life. It's not to be compartmentalized. It's not to be segmented into any. It, it applies to politics and economics and criminal justice and everything under the sun. And this is, this is what we had back in the day. Now, it's significant. We knew this so well that there was a Supreme Court decision that happened in 1844. It's called Vidal versus Girard's Executors. And in that Supreme Court case, it came with a school in Philadelphia. It was a government-run school. And the government-run school said, oh, we're not going to do the Bible at this school. And so it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. That was one of the issues of the Supreme Court. And it's like, wait a minute. The court said, and this was unanimous eight-year-old decision. said, wait a minute. Government-funded school not teaching the Bible? Unanimous decisions, the Supreme Court said, if you're a government-funded school, you will teach the Bible. We're not going to have a government-funded school in America who won't teach the Bible. I don't think we got that in our history books that when we went through. See, what we got was what happened in 1963, Abney Shimp and Murray Collette. These two cases is where it turned in America. And I've been involved in 13 cases the U.S. Supreme Court, was involved in a case this year. We're already involved in a case for next year. And if you want to know why the court took the Bible out of schools, all you have to do is read the decision of the court. That's what we do with any decision to know why the court decided what it did. And it's interesting that when you read the decision of the judges, they point out that the use of of the Bible in schools had been going for 160 years at that time, but they said it's time to do something different. They said taking the Bible out of schools was without historical or legal precedent. They said there's been absolutely nothing historical or legal for us to pull the Bible out of schools, but it's time to do something different. See, this is judicial activism, not following the Constitution, not following the law, imposing their own will, Roe v. Wade, Ober Obergefell with redefining marriage, Nothing constitutional, nothing law. They just want to impose their will on the nation. And that's what they did. And they quoted Dr. Solomon Grazel as why we had to take the Bible out of schools. It says, if portions of the New Testament were read with that explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. We've now discovered the Bible causes brain damage. We've got to save our kids from brain damage. We're taking the Bible out of schools. I would argue we've suffered more brain damage since we've taken the Bible out of schools than anything we've done at any point in time. Um, the, one of the quick examples of that is two years ago when the LGBTQIA plus community came to Texas at that time, it was only the LGBTQ community. After they came to Texas and worked on our textbooks to try to get some adoption done, they changed their name to LGBTQIA plus. And they added the plus because they said, we're not really sure how many genders there are, but that'll cover how many there are. Because they had started with four letters and went to five letters and went to eight letters and went to 13 letters, then went to 17 letters. And then they said, we'll call it plus. And at that point in time in Texas, they said, we now know there are 93 different genders. And that was in Texas. As of a month ago, corporate training, the LGBTQ groups are now doing corporate training saying, we've now identified 150 different genders. You've lost your brains. There's two genders. Bible says, and God made them male and female. He says that in four occasions. See, this is the, this is the brain damage that's been caused is getting away from the common sense that was part of the Bible for so long. So having said all that, going back to Benjamin Rush, Dr. Rush says the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. We now know that to be true psychologically, just studies of young people. The younger you are when you begin a habit, the more likely it is to remain through, with you throughout life. So if you start reading the Bible when you're in schools in four, five, and six, it's likely to stay with you all the way through your life. Now you should read the Bible every day anyway, but if you start in your 20s, 30s, 40s, that's great, you need to. It's gonna be a little harder to make it a life habit. If you start in your 80s and 90s, which if you haven't, you need to, it's gonna be even harder than, the younger you are, the more it becomes part of a life habit. That's just part of the psychological studies that are done now with whatever habit that is. So you go back, not read in school, seldom read any subsequent period of life. Since we haven't been reading the Bible in schools for now nearly 60 years, we've got two or three, four generations now that have been raised without reading the Bible in schools, and each one is becoming successively more biblically illiterate. Matter of fact, we have the most biblically illiterate America we've ever had in history. We've been doing polling work in America for 120 years. We know in all the time of polling, and then just going back to the content of schools in those previous 250 years, easy to say this is, this is the lowest biblical literacy America's ever had. Take a Ben Franklin today, 
take someone you say is not a Christian, see if they know the Bible as well as Ben Franklin knew the Bible back in that day. There's no way. There's not a chance that most Christians know the Bible as well as Ben Franklin knew the Bible back in that day. So this is the cultural change that's happened. And significantly, you look at all the issues that have been, and I chose every one of these issues on the screen because they've all been in the news in the last 24 months. Every one of them's been there. But the reason I put them up here is because every one of these issues is specifically addressed by the Bible. As Christians, every one of us should be able to say, oh, you, you want to know Bible verses about the minimum wage? Jesus got a great teaching on that in Matthew 20. Oh, you're, you're asking uh, about the capital gains tax? Jesus has a great teaching on that in Luke 19. We, we today as Christians have a hard time applying the Bible to public policy. We can apply to our faith and to morals sometimes and to some other aspects, but we used to be able to apply the Bible to every, and I put every one of those up there because the Bible specifically addresses every one of them. So that's why I'm saying every one of us needs to read the Bible more than we do until we get really comfortable with the Bible addressing any issue that we can find in the newspaper. And within that, going back to Benjamin Rush, another statement he made, Benjamin Rush said the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to manage his present state than any other book in the world. Let me give you examples of that real quickly. Um, I'm going to take you to a guy named Matthew Mari. Matthew Mari is a guy who was raised in America, born in 1806. He loved the sea. He joined the Navy, went to, to, to sea, was a sailor, midshipman, became an officer, became a captain. Then he got into private ship business. He had his own fleet of ships. He loved the sea. Man, he loved the sea. But one day he was ashore. He had a stagecoach accident that crushed his leg and his leg never healed back right. So he couldn't go back to sea because he couldn't keep his balance on that, that crooked leg. And so he, he loved the sea and he studied it. And it's interesting. He is now known as the father of oceanography because he's the guy that found all the jet streams in the ocean. Now I want you to think about what life is like in the early 1800s. It certainly doesn't have technology like we have. How did he find out where all the jet streams in the ocean were? How did he even know where they were? He's able to say, guys, if you'll move your ship over here about three miles, you'll go to Europe, you'll get there a good two weeks faster than any other ship. Literally, to, in America at that time, to go from Boston to San Francisco was a six month journey because you had to go down around the Cape of South America and come back up on the other side. When those charts came out in the early 1800s, if you followed the charts, it was a three-month journey. It cut three months off your journey. And if you're in commercial shipping, man, if you can get twice as many trips in in a year, that's a lot more income. It's a lot more prosperity. Our lifestyle starts elevating. Everything went up. And it goes back. And by the way, if, if you didn't know there were jet streams in the ocean, I just recommend you watch Finding Nemo. That's really easy. You'll find out from Finding Nemo there's jet streams in the ocean. He says that he was at home sick one day and he asked his family to read the Bible out loud to them. And they did. They read Psalm 8 out loud. And Psalm 8, this is part of the passage. It says, Lord, thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. And he said, stop, read that again. And they did. Read that again. And it's like, we just read it to you. Read it again. What got him was this path of the sea. And he wrote, he said, if God said there are paths in the sea, then there are paths in the sea and I'm going to find them. So it wasn't technology that found those paths in the sea. It was God's word and believing God's word that found the paths in the sea. But that wasn't the only verse that, that really shifted American culture and science at the time. Another one he points to is Ecclesiastes 1.6. The passage says, the wind goes toward the south and turns around toward the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on a circuit. The wind has a circuit? South, north? And he found out that in one hemisphere, the wind goes one direction. The other hemisphere, the wind goes the other direction. And because he figured out the paths of the winds, for the first time in history, it was able to have we could predict what was gonna happen with the weather, meteorology. He's called the father of naval meteorology. He said, guys, see the way those clouds are? Don't sit sail this week. Wait till next week. If you sit sail this week, it's not gonna be a good end. First time ever we're doing weather prediction and we're talking the 1800s? What kind of technology do you have? I don't know what kind, but he had the Bible and it worked out really good for him. See, that's why there are all sorts of statues built to Matthew Moore across the United States, except we keep tearing them down. But these statues of Matthew Moore, interesting thing about them, they all have the Bible beside his feet. That was the foundation for all of his ideas. This, this is what made him the famous scientist he was. 
The Bible, as Benjamin Rush said, the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. Uh, you have the same thing when you go to John Adams. John Adams, one of our founding fathers, the constitutional separation of powers is what made us different from every other nation. Isaiah 33, 22 identifies the three branches of government. But John Adams said, but we learned that not just three branches are needed, you need to have checks and balances between them and you need to have separation of powers and he said, we learned that in Jeremiah 17, 9. He actually has four letters where he writes about that, that passage, that teaching in Jeremiah 17 as the reason we did checks and balances and, and didn't do what everybody else had. And, and, and for example, in England, they had three branches, but the king, ran the, the, the king ran the king, the king ran the judges, and the king ran the parliament. What kind of check and balance is that? The king's in charge of everything. Not in America. And it was because of this. And by the way, on top of that, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison also quoted Jeremiah 17.9 as the reason we did separation of powers and checks and balances. You also have folks like James Kent. James Kent is called the father of American jurisprudence. And when we, he's one of the two guys who set up the American judicial system, which included circuit courts. States, we have circuit courts at the state level. Uh, we have circuit courts all over. As a matter of fact, you guys in Colorado are in the 10th circuit. And the judge that's over the 10th circuit is Neil Gorsuch. And the way it was set up back in the beginning for the U.S. Supreme Court, each justice was over a circuit. And the justices would get on their horse and they would ride to the circuits and they would ride the circuit. And that's what it used to be. Now, today, we all go to Washington, D.C. or we all whatever and the judges still ride the circuits but it's electronically but they used to ride the circuits on horses and the concept of circuit judges that's an interesting concept because that isn't what you see in a lot of other nations great britain whatever where'd that come from well the guy who up created said we got that out of first samuel 7 15 to 16 because it says in the scriptures that samuel judged israel and he rode the circuit from gilgal to mitzvah to all the different towns oh so the judge rides a circuit and goes to the different, he goes out where the people are. Yeah, that's what we had circuit judges for. You also have folks like Ben Franklin started the first hospital in America, started the first healthcare system in America, hospital, Philadelphia hospital in seven, Pennsylvania hospital in 1751. And that hospital, the reason he started that first healthcare system is on the logo he created for the hospital and it's Luke 1035. That's why he said, we've got to have a healthcare system, a hospital, and he quotes out of Luke 10. And then you've got people like, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton quotes Exodus 31:18 as the reason we have a written constitution. By the way, James Madison quoted the same verse on that. Great Britain doesn't have a written constitution. Israel doesn't have a written constitution. There's a lot of nations who don't have written constitutions. We do. How come? Verses like that. See, these are the type of things we had, and there's so much of this in history. And today we've kind of made the, the Bible a spiritual book. It's a Bible, it's an everything book. It's a guidebook for every aspect of life. And President Franklin Roosevelt said this. He said, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercises upon the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. Is it really? Have you seen that in your history textbooks? I don't think it's been conspicuously evident in my history textbooks. But you see, it was back in the 30s and 40s. He said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning the place the Bible's occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. So the Bible has been what has made us so unique in so many areas. And where are we today? Well, this is what I mentioned earlier. We have a real problem with biblical literacy. Right now, only 9% of Christians, Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. And we've had a 20% drop in the number of Christians over the last 20 years. Back in 2000, 85% of the nation professed to be Christian. Now, whether they lived it, believed it, or acted, that's, but at that time, 85% said they were Christian. As of 20 years later, in 2020, it was down to 65%. So we dropped 20 points in 20 years, and the biblical illiteracy is not high. And among those who are professing Christians, only 9% read the Bible on a daily basis, which is why man doesn't live by bread alone. If we were dependent on staying alive with meals, most Christians would be spiritually dead and probably are because they don't get that life that they need. Same way, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Only one in 16 Christians can put Bible verses, those issues that are put up on the screen, those issues that are there, Bible applies to all of them. A biblical worldview allows you to take the Bible and apply it to every single aspect of life, not compartmentalize it. Uh, John Quincy Adams, it started with him. I'll kind of wrap up with him. John Quincy Adams, when he was 10 years, when, when, when he was president of the United States, he wrote a book for 10-year-olds. Now grab this. President of the United States, he wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans 
showing them how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. What do you think happens today if any president, I don't care if it's Biden or Trump, if either of them wrote a book for 10-year-olds on how to read the Bible from cover to cover once a year, what do you think the national response is? They get their brains beat in. Of course, we don't even have pastors basically urging that, but this is a president of the United States saying, guys, you need to read through the Bible once every year. And so he, went and he, he wrote 11 lessons on how to, how to read through the Bible and get the most out of reading the Bible. This is what he told the 10-year-olds. He says, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. He said, I myself for many years have made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. And that was the American practice for all Americans. If you were in public school, until, until they took the Bible out of schools in 63, we read every year in school we read through every year and and so we're doing this in schools yeah that was his practice political people pastors it didn't matter business guys horseshoers whatever you were you read the bible cover to cover once a year that's what americans did so he's telling them this is this is what we do and he continues he says i've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit which i'm now recommend to you so kids listen up 10 year olds pay attention I want you to learn to read the Bible the way I read it. He says, I've always read it with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. I don't read the Bible like a spiritual devotional book. I look for something that'll challenge my thinking, my wisdom. I want something that'll challenge my behavior, my, my virtue. I'm always looking for practical applications. Matter of fact, he writes, he says that even with all the Bible reading he did, and he said he spent at least what? one hour a day in the Bible. He spent at least an hour a day in the Bible, and that's along with being president of the United States and being appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court and negotiating treaties to end the War of 1812 and being a diplomat in five different, all the stuff he did. He still gets an hour a day in. And he said in his writings, he said, every year I go through the Bible, I always try to make a practice to pick some topic. And as I read through the Bible that year, I just find every verse that relates any, anything to that topic and I write it down. And one year he wanted to see what the Bible said about banking and about finances. So he wrote all the verses down from banking and finances. And one year he went through and wanted to see what the Bible said about criminal justice issues and due process and wrote them all down. So he looks every year as he's going through to see things that he can apply to every aspect of life around him. So this is what he's telling the young people to do. So he's telling 10 year olds to read through the Bible once every year. Now, 10 year old, what would we call that? We'd call that a third, fourth, fifth grader, somewhere in there. I told you the Bible was used in schools all across the nation. Every state at the end of every year would put out its public report on what happened in schools this year. How much money was spent, how many students we had, how many schools we had, what we covered in school. And I want to take you, we have these reports from all the different states. Let me just take you to the one from New Jersey. The one from New Jersey schools, this is their 1816 annual report. And it's, talk, it's talking about what the first and second graders learned. So here's what it says. It says, all the scholars of the first and second classes, first and second grade, commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. So everybody in first and second grade is going to memorize this. What does text of the preceding Sabbath mean? It means whatever Andrew talked about on Sunday, we're going to memorize every one of those verses he referenced. Those are the texts. Whatever the preacher mentioned in the pulpit on Sunday, whatever verses he mentioned, we're going to, we're going to memorize that. Keep going. Now, this is first and second grade, but there was a kid that was a little sharper than the rest. It says, one of the scholars, first and second grade, has committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. First and second grader. Yeah, those other kids are really dumb, right? Look at this. All the rest of the kids, it says the majority have committed to memory the gospel by John. Now, nearly everybody in schools memorized the Gospel of John, but this one kid's added 30 chapters out of Psalms and Psalm 119. Second graders have memorized the Gospel of John in public schools in New Jersey. I don't know one in 100 Christians who memorized the Gospel of John. And this is what we got in public schools. See, this is a Bible nation. That's why we call ourselves a Bible nation. We can't do that if we don't spend time in the Bible. And so going to vaccinations, we're all tired of that. Don't think about COVID. Don't get distracted with COVID. Think about smallpox. Think about measles. Think about all these other vaccinations we do. What does a vaccination do? A vaccination gives you just enough of something to give you an immunity to it. Most Americans have had just enough of Christianity to be immune to it. They've had just enough of the Bible that they don't really get a good dose of it. 
We need a really serious infection of the Bible. I mean, it just needs to sweep. We've had too much immunization to it. We hear just enough of it to, to feel comfortable with it, but we really don't know it. And so my challenge to you is, is again, go back to that, that memorization aspect. Uh, go back to reading the Bible every day. If you're already reading it, good for you. Up your amount. Get to where you're as smart as a second grader in New Jersey. You know, <laughs> go to that level. Um, get to where you memorize the Bible every, every week. I mean, this is the key. Here's a good Bible verse to memorize. If you've not memorized it, it's Joshua 1.8. I'll close with this. Joshua 1.8, God says, constantly think about my word every day and every night so you'll be sure to obey it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. I would argue that America has been more prosperous, more successful than any other nation because we've done more in reading and applying the Bible. Now, Israel aside, don't count Israel. Every other nation, God's got a covenant with Israel, and that's terrific. We chose God, and we chose to live by the Bible, and we've done things no other nation's ever done. God's not particularly impressed with America. If we decide we want to walk away from the Bible, we'll walk away from all the blessings we've had. If we decide we want to be secular and that even as Christians we don't know God's word, he's not obligated to, to just keep America alive because it's got a really cool name with a certain number of syllables. He'll honor those who honor him, 1 Samuel 2.30, and he'll honor those who honor his word. He will keep the promises of his word. That's where we've got to know his word and put it into effect. So that's a great memory verse if you haven't learned it, but I challenge you, as much as this is about changing the culture, you know what? We can't change the culture if we don't know what the solutions are. We can't change the tax system if we don't know what the biblical tax system is. We can't change the education system if we don't know what the right teaching methods are. And I will argue a lot of the problems we have in education is not just the content, it's the teaching methods. We changed the teaching methods in 1920. We added five new elements of pedagogy that we use today. Even Christian schools are using secular teaching methods with Christian content. Go back to the way the Bible says we should learn. And there's lots of examples. Um, I'm not going to get into that. It's a whole different topic. But I'm just telling you, we need to know the Bible on every single issue. If we can do that, we will see this nation turn. And that's the best way to have cultural reformation. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, David. That was amazing. You know, we could just take that message alone and go home and meditate on that for, what, about a month to try to digest that. All right. Well, praise the Lord. Well, next up, um, I would like to invite up Jackie Bouvier. And uh, Jackie is the president of the Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition. And she's served in this capacity since 2014. She's uh, the Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition, and Jackie is one of our important strategic partners here in Colorado. Uh, it is a statewide unifying organization that promotes prayer, unity, and revival. Jackie's a service-oriented, versatile consultant, business owner, and community leader, and she was first called into ministry, I did not know this, at the age of 15 years old as you finished high school and seminary in tandem. That's pretty amazing. God saved your life, and uh, in her quest to do God's will, she served as a youth pastor, elder, elder at 15, uh, city, city clergy at one of her first and largest Hispanic churches in Denver, Colorado, for over 15 years, and this goes on for a whole other page, but uh, Jackie, we're so glad to hear from you today. Thanks for coming and sharing with us about the important work of Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition. Hallelujah. How many of us had lunch today? How many of us can feel the Holy Spirit in this place? Oh yeah, that couple together is amazing, right? Gives us the energy this afternoon. I truly feel honored. I feel short back here and I have heels on. I feel honored for what the Lord is doing and just honored to be up here where the great American people, Colorado and the United States have been speaking to us. How do you feel? Isn't it amazing? What an honor. In Spanish, we say that's a big steak, right? Okay, carne asada. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Richard. I just want to say that we are blessed 
to be able to have this partnership and to be able to know that we count on you as a man of God. Thank you for coming to Colorado. Thank you for coming to this highest places of Colorado, believing that God has great things for such a time as this. And I just want to say that God's calling upon my life has a lot to do with the unity and the revival that God has here in Colorado, which is why I want to tell you a little bit of how we became the Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition from an alliance that used to be a Hispanic alliance, alliance of pastors here in Colorado. I saw a vision in 2006 of a big key where I was opening a door and I looked back and I saw ministers, leaders, business owners. And at that time, the Lord took me out of four walls. I didn't know what that meant. The four wall mindset is what God was trying to take me out of so that I could understand and see what God was seeing. It, it took until 2014 when I was able to see that the church was asleep. There was a deep sleep that came upon a lot of the pastors and leaders of Colorado. And I'm gonna focus in Colorado because this is where the Lord has held us and put us together here for this time and where he has been using us. And then that day when we started serving ministers and I came on the Colorado Multi-Ethnic Board, which at the time was an alliance of Hispanic pastors, our encounter of pastors sleeping, churches sleeping was just so powerful that we didn't understand what was going on. So we came together with the vision and our vision is awakening God's giant and Colorado hearts to impact the world. Colorado, you guys, is a place that they call an incubator, but I call it the place where the Lord will bring the milk and honey through us and he will just bring the state to a place where we will make headlines because of what God is doing, what he's implementing, and how he is changing the nation by changing the state, and I believe it. In 2014, I remember driving after I realized there's been a dip, a dip, deep sleep in Colorado. And I remember God telling me, just drive up up I-70, go to the mountains and just wake up my church. I said, how do I wake up your church, God? And I said, okay, I'm not driving all the way up there. And then I put the radio on and then there's a song that says, go to the mountain. And I said, oh no, <laughs> I'm not driving to the mountain and I, I'm hungry, it's lunchtime. And I wasn't pregnant then, and I'm always hungry. And so then I turn it off and I put YouTube on. I said, oh, I want to listen to this message. And the message says, the Lord says, drive to the mountain. <laughs> so I drive to the mountain. And I say, I, I'm crazy for Jesus, right? Are you crazy for Jesus? Yeah. Amen. So we have to listen, right? And I go up there, and I don't know if you know Buffalo Bill's uh, grave area, and there's like tons of tourists. And when I'm up there, I'm like, there's no way I'm gonna be screaming up there like a crazy maniac. There's too many people. So as soon as I step on that platform, everybody leaves. Everyone's gone. So I stand up there and I look over all of Denver, Colorado, and God says, wake up my church. And I just start screaming like a crazy woman maniac. Despierta! You know, I'm, I'm Spanish, Latina. So, wake up church, wake up, despierta. And I just start waking up the church. So I believe this, right? All these prophetic acts that God puts in our hearts. If the Lord tells you to do it, do it. Do it. Because you are so strategic to the body of Christ. And every one of us has authority and we've been called for this. And I, in that moment, I didn't understand what I was doing. But I realized that God was calling people in different places where they were praying at the mountain, praying at the head of the rivers, praying in Denver, praying around the capital, capital praying here. Amen? So he unites what he's doing and he aligns. And why do I say this? Because then I realized that it takes an army. It takes a body of Christ. It takes unity. Unity, which is what we stand for. Unity, prayer, and revival. Revival. And I didn't understand this revival until I realized, and I want to read John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me.
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We are one. So this unity started to make sense to us. And we decided that Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition couldn't just be Latinos. It had to be every ethnic background, every leader, every faith leader, every partnership we can do and come together with and begin to be the glue that starts uniting to be one. Amen? So what did awakening and revival look like to us at that point? Wow. It was a purpose-driven, not a person-driven opportunity for our lives. We had a common purpose, and now we have a common purpose. We come together believing that the Lord is going to use us to put people in places of authority and remove the evil from Colorado in Jesus' name. That we can vote. That we can drive all these miles that we've been driving, Richard, with truth and liberty, believing that every church that is associated with the CMC will have voter guides at their churches. Amen? That we will see a revival. And what is that? Awakening each person's heart. If we wake up, we are the giant. Amen? Say, I am the giant. We are the body of Christ that the Lord has called for such a time as this. We are the ministers, the leaders, the ones that put people in places of authority. And once we understand that, we understand that this time has come for a miracle for Colorado. And I believe it with all my heart. Amen. So something wonderful last night that Lance talked about was that reformation. And I'm starting to understand that now. The, the revival we're going to see is not going to be like the revivals in the past. What we will see is a reformation, but we need to understand our authority of government that God has given us. Understand the kingdom that we walk in, the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are the influence. We are the gatekeepers. I understand the word of God that I was given in 1998. You are a gatekeeper. That made so much sense to me last night. There are mountains of influences that we must go take. And we must lead. We must lead because that's what we were called to do. Amen? I know I'm excited and I'm super happy and I promise you I will not give birth up here right now. But this is the time of the Lord. Amen. We have a common purpose. In Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition, if we put the mission up there, we are driven for unity. We are driven to come together. So if, if you have an organization, a church, a leader that wants to become a part, we want to support you. We want to be there so that we can unite the body of Christ for what God is doing. But you guys, this time is crucial. It's a time where we must understand everything that's being set up here and take it back and not keep it for ourselves. Share it. Share it. Take that seed and let it grow. Because we're here for this time. And say, I am awake. Say it again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'd like to invite my dear friend, Pastor Daniel, really quick. He is one of our board members, and uh, Pastor Daniel's from Korea, and I'd like for him to share this last 16 seconds. I'm just kidding. This last couple of minutes, um, because he has a powerful, powerful testimony, and also we support a huge event that they're holding in the Buell Theater this year. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Pastor Daniel Jung. I came to America back in 2013 from South Korea. Uh, my pastor in Korea, uh, he always taught me I should have thankfulness to America. Uh, have you heard about Korean War? <laughs> Do you know how many American soldiers died during Korean War? More than 40,000. Uh, without sacrifice of America, my country, South Korea, cannot exist. Not only that, you guys also sent us a lot of missionaries. Uh, through that, this is how my country was able to receive Jesus Christ. 
So, uh, thank you so much. I used to grow up Buddhist family in Korea, but back in 2009, by the grace of God, I was able to receive salvation, and God has totally changed my life. And here, I'm here to introduce about Christmas Cantara, what we are doing. Christmas Cantara is like a free Christmas music concert. Uh, we tour 26 cities uh, within a month to repay the gratitude uh, for America. Uh, we do it for free. So we tour with five buses, three semi-truck. So we tour all the states. Uh, here in Denver, uh, here in Colorado, uh, we do it uh, in Denver on September 24th, Saturday evening at Buell Theater. So we, we are inviting 3,000 people for this. Uh, it's your such an honor to be here today uh, together with a lot of patriots. And I learned a lot uh, from you guys today. Thank you for having me. And I hope to see you at the Gracias Christmas Cantara. Thank you. Thank you. And he is one of our board members. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. Can we wait just one second? Jackie, tell the folks how they can connect with uh, Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition. Maybe share your website real quick, if you have one. Yeah, so we are on Facebook. It's a group uh, page, and we have a booth right over here near the registration table. We have a QR code so that you can become part of our membership, and you can come there and obtain some of the information to be able to become part of the Colorado Multi-Ethnic Coalition. Thank you very much. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Daniel. Okay, guys, well, now we are in for a real treat. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Pastor Daniel.